Friends, let's uh, open up to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And can I also encourage you, as you are in Matthew 27, to kind of find Psalm 22. If you've got a bookmark, put, put a bookmark in Psalm 22. Um, because we're, we're going to be in that section as well, uh, quite extensively, more towards the end of the, of the, the service. But um, I don't know what your perception is of me. Growing up, um, when, when I thought of pastors, I kind of had a holy fear. You know, they, they were holy men, set apart by God. They were often kind of relationally disconnected from the rest of the church because they were treated as special people. And when when they kind of walked into the room, especially the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, you stopped running. There there was no no, uh, screwing around when the pastor is around. Because you never knew what they were going to say to you, or you never knew, you know, was lightning bolts going to come from their fingers. Um, but so I'm, I'm not sure how you really view me. The reality is, whether you believe it or not, I am actually qu- quite a tender guy. I, I am a guy, uh, and maybe it is just me on the verge of 50, but I am finding that I am more and more a tender guy. I am finding myself more prone to cry. And at first, you know, when I, when I first said that to my wife, I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself to be more of a weepy guy. She goes, well, that's good. I'm, 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 a, I'm finding myself to be a, a more tender guy. Uh, um, Dr. Chapman, in his book, uh, The Five Love Languages, uh, describes that there's different kinds of love languages. And for me, uh, words of affirmation and quality time are important to me. Words matter. Time matters to me. So if after service, one of you would come up to me and just say, Hey, Paul, I never want to see you again or talk to you again. I'll be honest. I, I would feel pretty bad. I, I, would, I would be hurt. Or if I got an email from one of you and you said, you know, Paul, I I like you, but the ministry you have been doing here just really isn't cutting it for me or my family. Uh, I'll be honest, I would be hurt. Relational connections matter to me. Words matter to me. But if my wife or if a a longtime best friend came up to me and just said, I never want to see you again, or I, I never want to talk to you again. I would be devastated. It would move from being hurt or bruised to being devastated. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment in the loss. Being forsaken or cut off or hurt hurts. But the forsakenness that we are going to read about by Christ on the cross is a whole different category. 
of being cut off. The relational loss between, was between a father and a son who had loved each other deeply and beautifully and perfectly for all of eternity. And in this moment, we are going to see Jesus was experiencing Judgment Day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't just a rhetorical question that Jesus was asking. No, the answer to why have you forsaken me is this. It's for you. It's for me. It's for us. Jesus was forsaken. He was cut off so that we would never have to be. That judgment should have fallen on us instead. So this morning we are going to read from Matthew 27, verses 45 to 46. Why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema shabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing this said, this man is calling for Elijah. And that's where we are going to stop the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. So it's the sixth hour. For some of us, that makes no sense, but according to the Hebrew clock, it was about high noon. The sun was high in, in the heaven, and darkness was rolling in. It wasn't just a cloud, it wasn't just a dust storm, as some uh, commentators may, may believe. It, darkness was rolling in. The reality is, darkness is not a concept that we need to teach. We don't need to teach our children to be afraid of the dark. They just sometimes are afraid of the dark. Nightlights. A light on in the bathroom. Darkness. And when you're in real darkness, you feel disoriented. I don't know if you've ever really experienced darkness, not just like bedroom darkness or, man, it's in the middle of the night kind of darkness, but I'm talking about where there is no light whatsoever. That kind of darkness is absolutely disorienting. It, it, you feel in those moments unprotected. You feel alone. And so it's no coincidence that throughout Scripture, darkness is associated with chaos. It's associated with sin. And it's even associated with God's wrath, darkness. The day of God's judgment is always depicted as a day of darkness. And this is that day. High noon, 
and darkness was rolling in. If we were, were to stop reading right after verse 45, as the darkness was rolling in at high noon, we would assume that God's day of judgment was coming. All those people who nailed Jesus to the cross, who were spitting at Him, who railed against Him, were about to get it. Under the cloak of darkness, God's wrath was going to come against humanity. But, as Jesus cries out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? We see that the day of God's judgment is not falling upon those Roman soldiers. It's not falling upon the other uh, man on the cross who denied Christ. It wasn't falling upon the high priests and the religious folks of the days who were cursing Jesus. But rather, God's day of judgment was coming upon Jesus. He was the one who was crying out, who was being forsaken, who was being cut off, who was being crushed by the wrath of God in that moment. In that moment, Jesus was taking the place of sinners. He was taking my place. He was taking your place. What we are seeing in this moment is a substitution is being made. When it comes to the cross, Friends, we are not innocent bystanders. It is our sins that are nailing Jesus Christ to the cross, hanging Him there, killing Him there. Jesus was taking our place and receiving what we deserved in that moment. We see the price that Jesus had to pay to be our substitute in that simple cry. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? God, in that moment, was forsaking Christ. My friends, we deserve, every one of us deserve, I don't care how good you consider yourself to be, how many little tokens of niceness or not-for-profitness or whatever it is, we all deserve to be forsaken by God. When we think about the cross, many times we miss the true price and the payment that was being made there. We tend to only think about the physical aspects, the pain, the death, and we miss out on the real payment that Jesus was making in that moment. There was an infinitely greater pain and price that Jesus was paying in that moment. Something happened in that moment that broke the silence. After three hours, high noon, darkness rolled in and there was silence from the cross. Something happened that broke that silence and caused Jesus to cry out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the Greek word for cry was was only used here, has, is only used here in the New Testament. I think that for some reason in my head I'm going, that's really appropriate. It's only used here. It actually is translated as scream. It's as though the 
our English translators couldn't quite get themselves to translate it at scream. Because the thought of Jesus screaming in anguish was too much to bear. But he did scream. R.C. Sproul called it the scream of the damned. It's the crucifixion within the crucifixion. All the physical pains that Jesus uh, had experienced, none of that. We, we get no record in the Gospels of when he was being whipped of him screaming out. We get no description of when he was being nailed to the cross of him screaming or crying out. No, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he was silent. But now, we have the scream of the damned. He's screaming out. In this moment, Jesus was becoming our substitute. He was becoming sin for us. And the result of that, of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, who took on flesh to dwell among us, who lived the perfect life that we could never live and died the death that we deserved, in that moment, Jesus Christ was being forsaken, cut off from God. This spiritual death was infinitely more painful than any physical pain that he could have ever experienced or that he has experienced thus far. It caused him to scream out the scream of the damned. And many of us here this morning have felt the pain of not experiencing the kind of love that we want to feel. Or maybe the kind of love that we feel entitled to have. We feel a void in our life. There's, there's a lack in our lives. We also know that there's nothing more devastating than losing a love of a lifetime. Honestly, today is, for those of you who know Dave and Emily Schisler, today is the anniversary of Isabel's death. Emily changed her profile picture to a picture of Isabel. The pain of a parent losing a child. As a parent, as a, as a friend, as a partner, you would welcome and embrace any amount of physical pain if it meant that you could just get that love back. There are married people who have lost spouses, parents who have lost children. There are those who have lost parents. The loss is devastating. It is painful. It leaves a mark in your heart and your soul. There's a soul wrenching that, is, that takes place because you're in some way, your souls were bound up together. I think about uh, stories of old faithful couples, right? They have been married for 50, 60 years, and when one of them passes away, what often happens? Soon after, the other passes away. Why? Because their, their souls were somehow bound up together. But Jesus' relationship with the Father was not just a 50 or 60 year relationship. 
It was one of intimacy, knowing and loving from all eternity. It was abounding up to the extent that we could never know or understand. There's no comprehension in the love that was being experienced in that moment. He was the Son of God who utterly lived for His Father. He was a Father who utterly delighted in His Son. And yet in this moment in human history, because of the plan that they had set into course many years ago, from eternity past, in that moment, Jesus became sin. He went to the cross. Instead of forsaking us, the Father forsook His own Son. He poured out His wrath on Jesus instead of on us. Listen to Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So let's not miss out on the true worth of the payment that was being made on the cross when Jesus took our place. There was something inestimably more precious being paid for you. God loves you. So as we hear Jesus scream out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We ought to hear Him screaming out to us. Paul, this is how much I love you. Insert your own name. This is how much I love you. His love for us is no sentimental, fading kind of love. It's a ferocious kind of love. The kind of love that says, I will take your place. No matter what hell or what kind of wrath I have to face, that is how much I love you. So through his scream, we see a substitution. But we also see that Jesus, in Jesus taking our place and experiencing a, a true heart of hell and being forsaken so that we don't have to be, we also see something also beautiful taking place. There, there's a transaction going on. In some way, we are stepping into his space. He took our place. He became sin for us. But we also receive something in this transaction. We receive sonship. We receive His righteousness. We receive His holiness. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For our sake, 
he became he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we, we need to see this perfect obedience that Jesus was, was, was doing, the, the perfect righteousness that Jesus was accomplishing for us. So on the surface, this, this kind of scream out doesn't seem like obedience. It looks like Jesus had finally reached his, his breaking point and was, he was crying out and screaming and questioning God. It seems like his unwavering faith during those 30-some years of life was finally breaking. He had lost his grip on God. It almost sounded like, God, are you serious? Are you serious now? I have done so much in your name now? However, the, the very opposite is happening. He's not losing his grip on God. He is double gripping onto him as he screamed out, My God! My God! Charles Spurgeon calls this the mighty double grip of his unhesitating faith. His double grip. Jesus wasn't crying out against God. He was crying out to God. He also cried out to him twice. He wasn't just saying, God, God. He was saying, my God, my God. It was a language of intimacy, of covenant, uh, of, of a biblical covenant. When, when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he said to them, you shall be my people. And I shall be your God. Intimacy. Relational connection. We also know that Jesus wasn't losing his faith in this moment. He wasn't questioning everything because of his, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we know that this quote, that phrase comes directly from Psalm 22. Cue your Bibles. Cue your Bibles, Psalm 22. In those days, the Hebrew people did not have Bibles that open up to Psalm 22 and it had that little numbering system or those little verses. It's not noted like that. In those days, the way that you would refer to a chapter in a section of Scripture was by quoting the first words of that psalm. So, in the time of Jesus's sharpest grief and his greatest pain he went where to psalm 22 he his mind immediately went to a song my god <laughs> my god why have you forsaken me when when we we are finding ourselves in, in great moments of pain. The last thing that we often go to is God's Word. I go to ibuprofen. I, I want to go to the doctor. Give me some morphine. Kill this pain. I don't want to go through any of it. But Jesus, in His, his greatest pain, his, his sharpest grief, He went to Scripture. 
This is obedience. And I, I want you to look deeper into Psalm 22. Why Psalm 22 of all of them? Listen to verses 1 and then 14 through 18. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me my, from the words of my groaning? I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Does that sound like a description? My heart is like wax. It is melted with, within my breast. My, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. <laughs> David wrote this psalm thousands of years before Jesus. Perfectly, He, he wrote this perfectly describing what Jesus would go through. How else can you do this? This is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God superintending these, these needed words through David thousands of years in advance, foreshadowing a coming one who will use these perfect words. And yet, it seems so dark with almost no hope. But then... Look at verse 18 through 20, 19 through 22. But you, O oh God, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus has not lost his faith. He was trusting in the resurrection that God would not leave him dead. In that moment, he's saying, I know a psalm. I know a song that foretells of God's rescue and God's saving. But let's keep going. Look at verses 23 through 25. This is like the kind of a preaching moment. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Jesus was saying, listen, all that we have, all that we plan to do to save these people, I will do. All that I have promised to do for their salvation, I am going to fulfill my vows. I am going to do what must be done. I will stay the course. So then in verses 26 through 20, 31, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live, how? Forever. 
I love it. All the ends of the earth shall remember and, and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall bow before you. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess what? That Jesus Christ is, is Lord. For the kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nation. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even those who cannot keep Himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to the people yet unborn that He has done it. So by quoting the first words of Psalm 22, Jesus was not losing His faith. He was not losing His soul. In fact, what was He doing in this moment? He was declaring His faith. He was doing what He was doing all to the ends of the earth, to all the families, that all might be saved. This, my friends, is obedience. Not just an obedience in life when things are going well, when you're drawing breath, but there was obedience even in death. Do you know what psalm follows this? The Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> I shall not want. Anybody know what the next line is? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. For Jesus, obe obedience meant death, but he still obeyed. Having lived the, the life of a perfect and absolute obedience with no mark of sin on his life whatsoever, instead of being blessed with heaven, what did Jesus do in this moment? He was marked and cursed with hell. Though being cast into the heart of hell, his response was still, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though you slay me, I'm going to bless you. Though you are crushing me, you're still my God. Though you are forsaking me, I will still be faithful. I will continue to, con I will continue to kiss the hand that has afflicted me. This is the level of obedience that is, for me, unimaginable. Who could obey more than this? The answer is no one. And so because of this substitution of Jesus, when God looks at us, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, because when God looks at us, He looks at us as if we had obeyed in the way that Jesus obeyed. That is the beauty and the power of the Gospel. That God looks at us differently now because of Christ's work. When we place our faith in Him, when, when things are bad and we run from God's Word, God treats us as if we run to His Word. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. When we're experiencing suffering and you, you tend to cry out to, against God, God treats as if you cried to Him. Why? 
Because that's what Jesus did. If you've placed your, your faith, your trust in Christ, know that He has taken, not just taken your place, He has given you a righteousness. We are clothed in Christ. This means, my friends, and some of you need to hear this, that God is not angry with you. He's not in, head sh- in heaven shaking his head as like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I am so disappointed in that one. If you're in Christ, this just isn't true. Christ received all of the wrath that we deserved, including all the disappo- disappointment from God that we deserve. Not only that, but this also means, so that's on the negative side, that, that uh, God is not disappointed or angry with you. But on the flip side, it also means that God is utterly delighted in you. Do you believe that? That when God looks at you, He goes, I could not be more proud of this one. Oh, look at what that one has done. What about that one? I am delighted in that one. And some of you need to hear that today. Some of you live as if God is just putting up with you. He may have forgiven you, yeah, sure, but you're just hanging on by a thread. If you are in Christ, this just isn't true. God sings over you with joy. When life is over, you aren't going to meet God and hear Him saying, okay, I'll just let you in. You'll meet God and you'll hear Him say, you're here. You've you've made it. You know what? I've got a place prepared for you. My good and faithful servant, enter into my house. Come on in. I've been waiting for you. Welcome home. It is, I am so excited that you are here. Welcome home. That's why Christian funerals are totally different than those who are outside of the family of God. In some way, yes, we grieve and our hearts are broken, but in some way we go, they met daddy. They've met the father. They've seen him. There's wholeness. There's life. There's no more sorrow. There's no more tear. God is pleased with them being home. So on the cross, Jesus was treated just as if he had sinned in all the ways that you and I sin. And God now treats us as if we have obeyed in all the ways that Jesus had obeyed. So in the way that God is welcoming home his son, Jesus Christ. Imagine. That is how God is saying, welcome home. What a glorious exchange, isn't it? It kind of changes the way you look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal, beautiful, long life in my kingdom. So my friends, the question is, do you believe this? Not not just like academically, in my head, knowledge kind of thing, but do you believe this? 
Is this yours? Is it wedged in every nook and cranny of your life? If you do, everything that happened to Jesus on the cross is a picture of what you will have, will never have to face. All of heaven and all of righteousness and God are yours. It's yours. You can just say with Jesus, my God. My God. Yet sadly, my friends, if you do not believe this, then everything that happened to Jesus on the cross is a picture of what will happen to you one day. How can a loving God who is, who is giving and generous, how can He send anybody to hell? It's a question that both unbelievers and believers have got to ask. We hope that perhaps God would be so loving that even if somebody rejects Him, God would still forgive them. This thought and this hope keeps us from even sharing the gospel in the way that we should, with fervency and urgency. Maybe God, in their last moment, they'll, He'll forgive them. How can a loving God send people to hell? Let me ask you another question. How can a just, holy God forgive people who rejected such a beautiful Jesus. After all that he's done. Your sins are real. God's wrath is real. Hell is real. If God did not, did not spare his own son as, as he's bearing our sins, what hope is there that he's going to spare anyone that is going to reject Jesus? If God would pour out His wrath on His own Son. Surely He would pour out His wrath on you if you reject Jesus. God is so holy that He demands a payment for sin. Sin has to be dealt with. But because He is so loving, He has provided the perfect substitute Jesus has taken our place. He has become our sin so that we might become holy, righteous, blameless, and under no condemnation. The good news is that as long as there is life in your breath, God is offering this Jesus to you. He's offering you this hope. So right now, as you say, if, if you believe in Jesus, that He has taken your sins, taken your place, you in some way get to take His place as a son of God, a daughter of God. My friends, this, this is the gospel. Believe on this. Believe on Him and you shall be saved. He was pierced for you. 
And by His piercing, His death, and being forsaken by God, we now have life. And that is good news. Amen? Let's pray.